Welcome to Cover Stories with Chess Life, the U.S. Chess Federation's podcast that goes behind the scenes and more in-depth about each month's Chess Life magazine cover story. Make sure to listen to our family of U.S. Chess podcasts, which includes One Move at a Time on the second Tuesday of each month, where Dan Lucas talks to people who are advancing our mission statement, Ladies' Night, which drops on the third Tuesday of each month, hosted by our women's program director, Jennifer Shahadi, and on the fourth Tuesday of each month, Chess Underground, hosted by our assistant director of national events, Pete Cargianis, in which he examines the game's eccentricities, peculiarities, and theoretical novelties. All can be found at the podcast link on Chess Life Online at uschess.org, or you can subscribe via iTunes, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Today's guest on Cover Stories with Chess Life is a man on the move. Grandmaster Maxime Vachir-Legrave is the author of our December cover story, My American Tour, which discusses his victory at the 2021 Sinkfield Cup and his second place finish at the 960 tournament directly thereafter. We've been trying to set up a time for an interview for a few weeks now, but uh, as it turns out, uh, Maxime is a very busy man. <laughs> and uh, today, January 2nd, was our first opportunity to record. And as it turned out, this was very fortunate indeed, because in the interim, uh, Maxime played a number of events, including the World Rapid and Blitz Championship in Warsaw, Poland, where he became the FIDE World Blitz Champion. There is a lot to talk about, and we have limited time, so let's get right into it. Bonjour, Maxime. Comment ça va? How was that? Hi. Hey, John. It's all good. <laughs> that, that was the, uh, the, the extent of my high school French. So um, I, I will stop embarrassing myself and just get into it. Congratulations on uh, becoming the FIDE World Blitz champion. Um, obviously, I mean, you, you must, of course, be pleased with the result, uh, you know, winning the Blitz. For sure. And uh, having a very strong result in the Rapid as well. But uh, generally speaking, what did you think of your performance? Did, did you think you played well or was it? Just serendipity? Well, for the first four days, I uh, was playing uh, either badly or n- at least not up to the standards uh, I want to set for myself. Uh, but then the fifth day, the second day of the Blitz, was uh, of extremely good uh, quality. I played a number of great games. I also had, uh, of course, what's needed in this kind of uh, tournaments, a little luck in some uh, crucial games. Uh, the first one uh, of the day against Boris, especially after the whole, uh, you know, COVID-related delays and, you know, trying to... Getting to play after that is uh, a bit um, difficult to, to be fully focused. But then uh, Boris lost on time uh, while he had a great position that he couldn't lose simply. And I want this to extremely important games. The first one against Levan was leading uh, by two points. Um, I turned things around in the last seconds uh, of play and same against Magnus uh, in a game that uh, helped me clinch uh, the playoffs. So those were some fortunate moments, but uh, in general, I was also playing extremely well. Uh, for anyone who is uh, would like to see more about uh, Maxime's thoughts on specific games, uh, I can definitely recommend his interview with Sagar Shah. That's up on the Chessbase India YouTube page. Uh, well worth your time. Yeah, that's right. We we did take some time to 
to check uh, every important moment. Um, and yeah, I, I played through a lot of the games last night. Um, of course, uh, I don't remember nearly all of them. There were a lot of games. I mean, it was like 30, 37 games or 34 games over the span of five days. That's right, yeah. By the, I mean, by the end, were you just sort of just worn out or or are you used to that at this at this point after after all the blitz and rapid games i mean i, I i'm used to play this world rapid and blitz but it's always one of the most uh, intense events uh, of the year i would say along with world cup of course which uh, is brutal by the end the thing was um in the rapid section we were uh, playing 15 games formally so five games every day and that's obviously too much so they reduced it this year to 13 games so that we only have one day with five games uh still a still a tough schedule actually and uh, of course 12 games of bleeds um it uh, i mean on the first day it does take uh, its toll on your energy uh, levels so it is one of the the events where basically you know um by the end of the day, you don't want to hang out, you don't want to go to a restaurant, you just want to, you know, basically eat your food uh, quickly and go to go to your room and rest. The um, the shift to thirteen games was in the rapid and uh, was was one of the talking points after some of the discussions about tie breaks. Yeah, uh, Magnus uh, came out and and was was very vehemently uh, upset by the way that the tie break system uh, was in, was was put into the rules for this event. I'm wondering what you think about it. Uh, do, do you think that the, the tiebreak system is fair? Or do, you, do you have a, a preference for something better? Well, first of all, in general, um, things are changing because I remember in 2015, there was no tiebreak, I believe, uh, in case of a chef for first place. Um, and tiebreaks were introduced recently. Of course, I think that every player who get there, I mean, share first place should be able to be involved in a tiebreak. And um, uh, yeah, like uh, Sasha Grishuk told me of a quite simple solution. So for instance, let's say you have seven players uh, sharing first place. So seven is a huge number. So, you know, it's already not likely, but there's a simple solution. So you... You get six players fighting out for three spots. The top finisher gets a buy, and then uh, you get four players fighting, uh, fighting for first place, and two, and, and then one. So it can be solved with one robin match. Um, of course, it does take some time because let's say one match lasts at least thirty minutes, so it will take uh, about two hours to complete. And two hours in such a packed schedule is uh, generally a lot. So then there could be discussions about whether to to get these tiebreaks done, um, you know, during the last day or right after the game. So maybe create an extra day for tiebreaks, which uh, would be inconvenient for most players because, uh, well, then they have to to wait for one more day if they want to to be at the closing. Let's say some someone who won. Um, who won a medal but is not involved in any tiebreak. So, you know, that could be, this could be up for discussion. Um, but in general, I think, you know, the most important thing um, is to, to read the rules before the event and to 
actually point out if there's something um, wrong, I think. Uh, um, and in general, things, uh, I mean, in these situations with tie breaks, uh, like things are improving, it takes time, but uh, for instance, um, we're probably going to implement no, uh, an actual playoff uh, in candidates for the first time. And I think that's a great thing. So, you know, it's not like FIDE uh, in this respect does take, um, I mean, FIDE does take uh, consideration, on, you know, uh, player thought and uh, how to actually improve uh, with time control or so we regularly um, uh, have calls to answer to, to ask for, for opinion on, on time control. So nothing's perfect. I mean, like... Uh, there are definitely things I would change myself, but that's also my opinion. So someone's opinion might might diverge. Um, but yeah, in general, I do agree with Magnus that the tie break, uh, the playoff system, is, is not optimal. But uh, and that it should definitely be changed uh, for the future, one way or another. This was not the only criticism of the the Rapid and Blitz, and and in fact, you were. You were not shy about sharing your opinion of some of the problems that you saw on the ground in Warsaw on Twitter. Um, what was it like being there? I mean, they they put the the event together very quickly. Yeah, but there were there were some problems, of course. And I understand that there's going to be some problems uh, uh, because the event uh, was so last minute. So uh, I didn't intend to to create drama, but. The thing was, it felt like some uh, of the priorities um, were not what they should have been um, for some of uh, people from the organization uh, at that point. And that's uh, also why I uh, I ended up tweeting about it. Uh, because, I mean, for instance, the lack of uh, water bottles on the first day uh, it's kind of major, it's kind of big. Um, so this was one of the things, uh, you know, I didn't try being vocal about, or of course, the problem with buses ending up um, with one late bus for more than 100 persons. Uh, basically, we were all, um, all um, you know, packed in the bus, uh, I mean, it would have been difficult to add one more person to the bus. That's uh, that's for sure. So, in this time of COVID, already it's not ideal, but it was more more than anything dangerous. Simply in case of uh, the, the bus break, breaking, you know, because of traffic or whatever. The um, I, I mean, we, we can't avoid the COVID issue. Um, what what was the what was the testing like? I mean, I, there was a, a tweet by Vidit where. He said he was waiting for you know hours for a, for a public testing site to, before he could play. Yeah, so there I was uh, lucky that uh, I didn't need the test to come back to France, uh, so I didn't have these uh, issues. But in general, uh, of course, uh, it was an issue, and I also think that, um, um, and of course, this was again last minute. But uh, now in every event, uh, you should be able to to have uh, an actual testing of the players done before the tournament and maybe uh, 
maybe before the tournament is over. Like in Riga, for the Grand Swiss, we were tested every three days, more or less. So, so there was there was no required testing on site at the Rapid and Blitz. There was no required testing. No. Wow. Um. So in general, also I think uh, the protocol, the COVID protocol rules, uh, have been uh, either too lenient or non-existent. Um, should it be, for instance, in terms of uh, players wearing masks? I understand that during the game, uh, you know, like you know, when you when they play football, they um, don't put a mask on, of course, to play football. But uh, or when they play basketball in the NBA. But at the same time, um, um, whenever they go to the bench, they have to put their mask on. Or whenever they go to the bathroom or what, you know. Whenever they're not in the field of play, you know, they, they put their mask on. And uh, clearly there should be a protocol of some sort, like, uh, well, at least uh, as detailed as it is in NBA, in the NFL, in uh, you know, in the ATP, in tennis, in soccer, everywhere, everywhere there's a protocol, and uh, this should be the main priority um, for the next uh, for the next events. You you wrote a little bit about this about the 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 importance of masks and and your comfortable your your comfortableness with masks uh, in the in the cover story for Chess Life, um, and you know I was looking at photos in my preparation. I saw. You know, photos of you at the Grand Swiss, and uh, you were wearing a mask. And uh, you know, even in some of the commentary that I heard during the the Rapid and Blitz, they they commented on that you were wearing masks during team championships just to prepare yourself for this. I mean, how? Go, go ahead. I mean, no, I started wearing masks. I think uh, in the Bundesliga in 2020 to prepare for the moments where I would need or, you know, either because um, it would be mandatory, so that was uh, in Singfield Cup, for instance, or if, um, you know, I had um, uh, concerns about, uh, you know, COVID, the possible uh, COVID outbreaks, and that was the case, uh, I think, in Slovenia for the... European team championship. And that's why, um, and for instance, uh, here in the Rapid and Blitz, I was mostly not wearing the, match, uh, the mask during the games because uh, it would still be uh, a little less comfortable than, than that wearing one. But um, yeah, I'm ready to wear one uh, in case it's uh, absolutely necessary. I mean, we we're playing behind closed doors and, you know, it's not gonna, like we're going to open every window uh, during play. So even though we should uh, at least do that, uh, you know, when uh, play is not running, uh, this should be one, maybe one of the measures uh, taken. When I was looking at your games that you played in, in Warsaw, um, I, I, was, I was surprised, well, first of all, to see you play the French defense. Um, as a, as a, it was not a tremendous success. So. <laughs> well, but, but it's something that you have been playing recently and, and, you know, you have this reputation for being a player who is very committed to a certain set of openings, much like Kasparov used to be, uh, in the, in the eighties and early nineties, you know, you, you play the Nidorf, you, you play the Grunfeld and you play E4 as white. But when you look at your games from the last year or so, you've certainly 
you've broadened your horizons a little bit. And I'm wondering if that's a a consequence of having to play so much Rappin' and Blitz. Uh, Is it, is it a conscious choice just to, to stretch yourself out? Um, What's going on there? And uh, I'm a pragmatic player, so you know I take decisions um, about how I'm going to play, about the openings, uh, choices I make. Um, you know, depend- choosing what I believe will uh, will bring me, uh, you know, the best chances. Um, together with my coach, we, we make those decisions. And of course, um, you know, for a while uh, I'm thought, you know, playing Grenfell and Nidoff were a very sensible choice and worked uh, very well. And uh, at some point, you do adapt and there uh, are maybe some, uh, some openings that, uh, that also work, uh, work well uh, and that I'm able to play. So it's not like I never could play anything else. I just thought uh, it's good enough and it's um, positions that suit me well and that will Give me, bring me the best results. Does the way you prepare for tournaments change depending on the time control? Um, generally, a little bit. Of course, uh, when you go rapid and blitz, uh, it's important to be um, to have some training games. And uh, maybe the way you, I was looking at the, the openings as well, the way I was solving puzzles was a bit different. But overall, that's not that big a difference. Of course, the difference is also you don't prepare specifically for certain players or very little for for rapid and blitz because you, you can play uh, around 150 uh, or even 200 different players. So before the um, before the rapid and blitz, um, you were you were you were cited in Dubai at the World Championship. Um, so why did you go to Dubai? Were you just uh, wanted to see the show, so to speak, or? Uh, I was just uh, visiting a friend and uh, having fun uh, with my colleague uh, and uh, you know fellow Frenchman Jules Moussa. So we were just hanging out uh, during the day, or more correctly, uh, during the night, <laughs> uh, and having fun. Um, you know, also it was a good time for me to refill batteries because I'd been playing. Uh, both Riga and uh, the European Team Championship, so I had uh, I was depleted of uh, any energy left uh, after that. So a few days in Dubai, where it's um, at the best time of the year to go there because it's uh, around um, you know seventy five eighty degrees Fahrenheit. So I, I'm very impressed by the way that that you are you're translating on the fly to Fahrenheit. You you did this in the interview with Ben Johnson as well, and he was uh, he he was floored. Um, you know your audience very well. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm. It's a bit approximate, but uh, at least it should be around that. Uh, yeah, people are not used to Fahrenheit, but I've been in the US uh, too long, also. Like I've been there for two months. You, you have to. You have to get used to it. Yeah. Um, we'll we'll talk about your time in St. Louis in a moment, but I I did want to ask a little bit about uh, the experience being in Dubai. Um, what what was your what was your impression of the match itself? Um, did it surprise you the way it ended up? Yes, uh, it did. It did surprise me because um, Jan decided to play very solidly for a while, and uh, but that's not uh, who he is. Like 
Sergei Karyakin uh, in his match uh, against Magnus, he did go for a very solid play, but um, he has more patience. So, you know, I mean, Jan has uh, many other chess qualities, but I don't think being patient is one of them, even though he did improve. He's not as impulsive as he was two years ago, but over the course of a long match, um, his impulsiveness uh, showed again because uh, while he was sitting around and uh, I think in game six, uh, it cost him a lot. And then uh, he was also not uh, mentally ready to, to recover after game six and he never recovered. So probably he was just not uh, well prepared enough. I'm not talking about openings, but just to, for his approach uh, to the match. At least that's, that's how I see things um, on this perspective. You have some experience uh, in in working on a world championship team because you were working with Carlson in 2016. That's right. What what was that experience like for you? What did you did you learn anything? Did anything surprise you from his process? No, I learned uh, a lot. There. I mean, of course, in terms of openings, but also in how you know as the work um, was distributed. How you know. Uh, how to clean up the files, how to to organize everything because this um, this was something um, it was done uh, you know to to avoid like because if everyone is looking at the same file then the file becomes a, a total mess but and it's important to to keep things very clean so that you know the the player in this occurrence Magnus can can look at the lines and be very comfortable about it. Were you able to to implement anything you learned there in in your work with your own team? I mean, you, you have a team of, of of assistants and seconds that work with That's you as right, well. Yeah. Were, were you able to import any part of the process to that? Of course, there are some things uh, I liked, some things I thought were not necessary for me. It also depends on on the players. Uh, like um, we all have different uh, uh, styles for you know the. Uh, how to approach opening files. Uh, some uh, some persons like very detailed files. Some uh, prefer summaries. Some um, uh, want to stop lines uh, whenever they feel comfortable. Some want to be prepared for for about anything. And uh, yeah, there are some similarities. Not, not uh, it's not all similar, but how Magnus and I approach this uh, file system. So. Of course, there were, there were some things I, I could learn from this experience. One of the the so the, the work you did for Chess Life was was based in part on on uh, writing you did for your own website. Um, but one of the things that you expanded upon a bit was how you were able to prepare for tournaments in St. Louis. You you were there by yourself, correct? That's right. So you had a team working for you in France, and then you were also able to access. Um, powerful engines when you needed them. That's right. I mean, it's been the case for many years now. Uh, this uh, remote uh, remote engines uh, or remote computers, more accurately, uh, I access on daily basis for for ten years now. So this is um, this is good. Sometimes it's uh, computers that I actually own. Sometimes it's cloud engines. Uh, so it's a little bit of everything. And uh, Etienne, for instance, to, to talk about Etienne, who is my main uh, coach uh, in terms of chess, uh, does um, sometimes come to tournaments with me, but 
he's not going to travel with me six months a year because he also has his own tournament. He has family. So he generally comes to two, three tournaments a year, sometimes more, sometimes uh, sometimes less, but that's uh, how we approach it. So it does happen very often that I'm uh, alone at uh, tournaments. You you said that Etienne Becro was your your main coach for chess. Um, you, you also have uh, mental coaches, correct? Like like sports psychology coaches. Is that correct? Yeah, I have a full team working for me basically. So I have uh, I do have a mental coach. I have a sports coach, fitness coach to you know help me be more rigorous in my um, in my physical preparation, and I have. Uh, team of uh, three, four, five people, uh, it depends, uh, who, who help me with chess lines and, uh, you know, and of course I also have a manager who helps coordinate every, everything and, you know, helps me of course, uh, through basically to optimize, uh, my time and my preparation, of course. And, uh, he talks with uh, organizers. He talks with everyone also involved in my preparation. Uh, that's how it works. So you, you're just in the best place you can be to just focus on playing and, and they take care of the rest. Exactly, yes. Let's talk a little bit about um, about your time in St. Louis, the, what, what you wrote about for uh, our December issue. Um, and I guess we really should begin by talking about your website because I, I feel like not enough people in the English-speaking world are aware of it. Um, you you have a fairly extensive website, and and what I really like about it is that you're very frank. You're very you you when you do your recaps of the tournaments you've played and the things you've done, um, you're you're very blunt. Yeah. Is that is that how you are in real life, or is that just you you trying to to uh, be as clear as you can for your readers? A little bit of both. Uh, of course, I don't hesitate to point out, you know, how I play and uh, uh, what I should improve and what's been going well. Um, so this is not a problem for me. I I actually have this quality of being generally very objective about my assessment on uh, how I performed and uh, what I should uh, improve for, for next events. So that's very normal for me. Also, it's indeed, uh, you know, this website is very important. And of course, uh, and there are persons who help me run it because I, I wouldn't do this on my own. But uh, um, I feel like it is important to give some uh, some feedback on, uh, well, maybe not every tournament, but my most important events and how things are going. And I think uh, people do appreciate it. Uh, in general, and uh, uh, not enough uh, players uh, actually do this, which makes sense. It, it does take a lot of time uh, unless uh, people help you with it. Uh, for me, it doesn't take that much time this way. It takes me like maybe one, one hour a week or something like that. So uh, let, let's take a look back. I mean, it, it feels like it's ancient history now. There's been so much, so many events that you've played and, and so much has gone on in the world. Um, but the Sinkfield Cup, uh, you're, you, you, you had a first place with six out of nine. And this is, I believe, the second time you've won the event. Is that correct? That's correct. I also won in 2017. So looking back now, what, 
what do you take to be the key moments from the victory? Well, I think one of the key moments uh, was that I, um, you know, after a loss, it's always uh, a bit um, difficult to come back to the next game. But I had started well. I had won two games. So then I lost to Lenier after a mix-up in uh, some night of lines, uh, which he very com- convincingly, very convincingly, uh, you know, uh, very convincingly one after that. Um, so then I was, of course, very upset with myself, but I still came back the next day, played an actual very good game and bounced back immediately. And that was a key moment. So I guess my game with uh, Fabiano then, where I did remember my lines, it was very complicated struggle in the night off, and I definitely had my own there. Um, despite the position being so complicated and probably even uh, objectively lost uh, at some point according to computer. Um, so this gave me confidence that I was uh, already getting my goals back and uh, still playing well, and I did win uh, another game after that. Uh, so my uh, result with White, of course, also was uh, paramount to my success with uh, four wins in the first four games. I, I wanted to ask you about something you just said about uh, e- even though you were you, you talked about being lost with the engine thought you were lost with with uh, in one of the games. Yes, is there a certain tyranny of the engine that you feel that you know when when spectators are watching the games of any top player, they're howling when the engine you know goes above one or you know one and a half and yeah, I let them howl. It's, <laughs> it doesn't really matter. I mean, there are moments where, you know, uh, it's different being lost according to a human point of view or according to an engine. So if it, you're only lost according to an engine with a line that's um, basically impossible to find for, for a human players, then you're definitely not lost in terms of practical play. And that's all that matters. Is there, um, has there been a change in the strength of the engines in the last couple of years that, that really allows you to trust their evaluations more? Um, well, we started trusting the engines uh, more and more back in 2010, I would say, uh, maybe a little bit before. Uh, but now it's uh, even, uh, I mean, they're getting better and better. And, you know, Stockfish 14 is uh, tremendously better than Stockfish 12 uh, for starters and stuff like that. So um, now we don't add uh, as much value during uh, opening preparation. You know, uh, sometimes we can just uh, do it uh, with an engine only. So you had a small break after the Singfield Cup, um, and then it was on to the 960, where you finished in second place. Um, one of the things you wrote about for Chess Life was the participation of Gary Kasparov. That's right. What is it like getting to play with Gary? Um, and and where do you see his strength at right now? Yeah, I uh, didn't have the opportunity to play Gary while he was, uh, you know, a competitive chess player. I mean, playing as his profession, let's say. And I did have a couple of opportunities to play him uh, later on, but uh, never... I think in an official tournament uh, over the board, like uh, it was the case uh, both in Croatia and in St. Louis. 
And of course, in Croatia, he suffered, but um, in St. Louis, he showed that he can still uh, definitely play chess, hanging there, and his strength is uh, obviously over 2700. Um, that's for sure. Then, uh, especially in 960, where you know you don't need to remember so much opening theory, uh, I mean, that probably was good news for him. Uh, but the same with uh, Anatoly Kapov, who still plays and can play a tremendous chess uh, on a on a good day, uh, as he did in some blitz tournament in Moscow, I think. Yeah, he beat uh, he beat Karyakin, yeah, uh, this year. So of course, you know, like Kawi said, uh, from his temporary class is permanent, and uh, when we talk Gary Kasparov, uh, I mean, class is uh, you know something he, one word he definitely you know. No, that, that I think that's exactly right. Possesses, I don't know how to say it. Is it is it simply that his openings, that he's not been able to update them? I mean, has opening theory changed that much since he stopped playing competitively? Um, opening theory has changed that much, but I don't think uh, Gary stopped working on chess uh, after that. I mean, he definitely puts puts a break on, on, on that thing. Uh, like, he's not working as much as before, fortunately, but... <laughs> but he still loves chess, and I think uh, chess has been his life also. So that's why he still uh, he still look at looks at things uh, as even probably people helping him uh, to go through the things. Uh, I know he was playing some training games, uh, for instance, with Peter Fiedler prior to to the nine sixty. How do you feel about nine sixty? Do you, do you do you think it will ever be as popular as as traditional chess? And, uh, as popular, I don't think so because uh, the problem with 960 is that it's already a tremendously complicated game to play uh, forest players. And for instance, there was one game where I was winning by move four by just playing, uh, you know, normal developing moves. I think against Sharon Medeiro, I was just winning after four moves and I played something like uh, along the line of D4, Bishop B4, E3, Knight B3. And it was already winning because my bishop was on before. I, yeah, this is this is in the this is in the article, by the way, for people who uh, yeah who, who want to take a look. I mean, my first four moves might not be very accurate, but I remember bishop before at least. Um, so anyway, uh, if it's so complicated for us, the problem is how to play this, you know, in random tournaments for like beginner or occasional players. Uh, so that would mean that uh, we don't play the same game uh, at every level. Uh, so I don't think 960 can be as popular for, you know, people who, who begin to play chess, you know, there's already so, so much to learn. Uh, it's not the game at least you should begin with. Uh, but uh, for, for us and, you know, for you know, people who want to play 960, I think, it is a good alternative and people have fun playing next 60, especially in this format where you spend some time analyzing with the other players, um, the positions. That's actually great, a great feature. You don't have uh, your engines, but you just look at these positions, uh, you know, old style, you know, like in the 70s, 80s, where people would look at openings, uh, you know, with their colleagues. So, so that felt great. But I don't think it can be as popular. You uh, you spent about two months, uh, all said and done, 
uh, away. Well, how how long were you away from home for the for the entire trip? Because you you came in from yeah from uh, the World Cup, and I was out or so. Um, um, to Croatia before. So I think I left on 5th of July, mm-hmm. if I'm correct. And I came back probably on the 12th of September, so more than three months. Yeah, and a lot of this time you spent in St. Louis, although you did sneak off to New York, which as a, as a native New Yorker made me very happy. I was glad you got to go to, uh, go to one of your other favorite cities, I, I'm, I'm told. Um, but given that you've spent so much time in St. Louis... Uh, we asked you to make some some travel recommendations for the magazine. Um, what what are your favorite places in St. Louis? What do you like to do while you're there? Yeah, honestly, I didn't do very much. Uh, I mean, I often go to Forest Park just to be able to to have a jog, even though that should be done uh, in the summer before maybe nine or ten a.m. maximum because it's so it's so warm outside generally. Um, there are some places in the center. Uh, uh, I mean, uh, I don't even remember the name of specific name of uh, you know the district, but where, oh, the Central where, West End. The Central West End, that's right. Yeah. Um, so there are some good places to eat, some good places to go, to go there and uh, have fun. But um, yeah, in general, I was very often uh, in my hotel room. Uh, you know, working on chess, uh, preparing for the next events. There was also uh, limited time because uh, not only was I playing uh, the 960 and uh, and the Singfield Cup, there was also the Rapid and this, which I almost ended up playing. I think I was first replacement or something uh, because, uh, well, some people couldn't really make it uh, to the US uh, because of travel bans. Uh, and uh, and I was also playing in uh, in an online tournament uh, in between. So you know it was pretty busy. <laughs> but uh, yeah, Forest Park was my place to go. You know to to be able to to hang out. We also played some tennis actually with Fabi and uh, Levon in the last days. Um, so yeah, sometimes I was also hanging out with them, and of course, for hanging out there were the chess houses, the legendary chess houses. <laughs> yeah, this is um, th- these are these are homes owned by the the chess club that they make available next to the chess club. Yeah, yeah that that the uh, the, the visiting uh, grandmasters and 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 special guests can stay in. So um, yeah, I've never che- I've never stayed at the chess house, but. Uh, I mean, I think, for instance, even live on state uh, there sometimes. So they are very comfortable. That is what I have heard. <laughs> you, yeah. you've, you've won so many big events in your career. Um, you've won at Beale, at Dortmund. You've won the St. Field Cup twice. Uh, you've won uh, events on the Grand, on the Grand Chess Tour. Um, what, what place does this St. Field Cup win have? And, and, and more importantly... How 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 does the the Blitz Championship rank on your list of accomplishments? I think the World Blitz Championship has to rank first. It, it is a World Championship, and I definitely was you know aiming for one this year desperately because I had been decently close on some occasions, <clears throat> and I thought this uh, is something I should achieve uh, at least once and hopefully more before the end of my career. Is it should it be either in rapid or in blitz? Um, 
And then the Singfield Cup, uh, I wait very early also because uh, I was coming from a period uh, early 2021 where I was not playing up to the standards uh, I was hoping for. And this was, uh, I also had uh, difficult to, you know, to process a loss <coughs> with uh, Sergei Karyakin in the World Cup. I mean, it was a very tense match and uh, Sergei played extremely well. Um, so it was not a non-deserved loss, but, uh, you know, it was, um, you know, a qualifier for the candidates and I was hoping to to do better and to actually um, go to the final uh, this time. Uh, it was a big... Uh, so I definitely needed a confidence uh, boost back and uh, the Singfield Cup uh, provided it. Provided it. Of course, the first time I won it in 2017, the field was uh, stronger, but because of COVID uh, issues, um, uh, the field was a bit more mixed this year, but it was still a tremendously difficult tournament to win with uh, you know, players like Fabi, like um, I don't think Levon was playing because of these issues, but uh, Wesley was playing, Charles was playing, uh, uh, Jan was not playing, I think. Uh, but anyway, it was still a uh, you know, world-class tournament. I, I've been impressed in, in doing my research that, that you, you seem to have a, a very strong interest in growing the game, in, in, in helping chess grow, particularly in France. Um, you know, you have a book uh, about, sort of like an autobiographical book, I, I, I guess. That's right. Uh, that's only out in French. Is, are there any plans for that to be in English? Um, so would have been maybe, but uh, it's not... Uh like up to me too. Mm. And I, I mean, maybe, you know, this is a kind of thing that can be translated at, at any time or any point. So for now, it's not a plan, but uh, let's say in five years, uh, should I become world champion? It might definitely be uh, on the table and maybe with some updates. <laughs> um, yeah, no, from, from what I've been told, it's, um, Again, it's it's very frank. It's very um, open and honest, and it sort of tells your story. Uh, so, hopefully, if there are any chess publishers out there, uh, they or or I guess any trade publishers, this is something they should maybe latch on to. Um, so, you you do this, but you know, you've also you've been involved very much with uh, the Kasparov Chess website. That's right. Um, you've done. Uh, I, I saw you did a course on Endgame Studies for them for their English language. Uh, yeah, correct. Uh, and I also have. Uh, well, a lot of contacts with the French chess community, uh, with the streamers, uh, especially Kevin Bordy, Blitzstream. Yeah. You're going to be, you've got about 15 minutes until you have to go talk to him, I know. So I, I, I don't want to keep you too No, long. no. I mean, yeah. So it's good. It creates a link, also a direct link between me and the French community or, you know, the international community as well. And that's great. And that's, does help, um, you know, grow the interest for the game, like uh, a bit like what Ikawood does uh, for a much uh, for a large audience as well. Uh, Kevin's audience is also actually very big, and that's that's great. You know, you have more people interested in chess, um, and then they want to learn chess. I see how it goes. They want to learn. Uh, they want to play, and this way, you know, at some point, you know. Of course, for people who are already, you know, 15, 20 years old uh, or more, they're not going to become uh, like world champions. Uh, and they know that, but, you know, 
awards it's interest for the game grows and uh, more people play more people more young people learn and uh, that's how you you get better players and uh, uh, I think in France there was uh, there is uh, you know Leo Battisti who was uh, president of the Corsican uh, region uh, for chess for more than 20 years and uh, yeah his idea was to develop the game in schools and every player in I mean every person in Corsica basically from there on learn to play chess at school uh, in school and um, yeah when I went to Corsica I saw the interest for the game I saw the interest for the players and I thought that's great and that's uh, also why I'm uh, committed to helping the game go you know through through my games and of course through the values i i can i can bring to to everyone brilliant i will that's that is good to hear i mean we're, we're seeing a similar boom in interest here in america so it's yes and not only in america like uh, of course we've been uh, lucky with Prince Gambit. Yeah. I mean, it did uh, bring a lot of interest on its own. So before we 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 finish up, I do want to ask you uh, what is next. What what tournaments are next? Do you have any big projects coming up? Yeah, my main uh, objective will be to qualify for the candidates. So my last chance is for FIDE Grand Prix, <coughs> which happen um, in between February and beginning of April. I play uh, two of them, and uh, well, I will spend uh, my next uh, months preparing for that. Wow! So the preparation starts now. Uh, yeah. Well, there's you know, there's never many chances to qualify for candidates, and uh, I've come uh, extremely excruciatingly close uh, in on many occasions. Um, so I don't want to to let this one go, and uh, there's. Definitely a lot of things to work on uh, before. Like, there's always something to work on, so preparation starts now. It, it makes me glad, as, as someone who is a decent club player, but it makes me glad to hear you, someone of your strength, say that there are always things to work on, because if you have to work on things... <laughs> well, the thing is, when you see our computers play and that you're basically not able to to get a draw against them uh, any time, like, or maybe one in a thousand games... So, you know, it humbles you as a chess player and, you know, the times where Capablanca said uh, chess might be solved soon are frankly over. So we always finish our, our, our interviews with a questionnaire um, that... That's, uh, sounds in, good. Uh, so I'm going to give you a list of 10 questions that um, were popularized on a, on a TV show here, but they came from questions from Bernard Pivot uh, and they were based on oh, right. uh, based on questionnaires by Marcel Proust actually so uh, if, if they sound familiar that's why uh, so 10 questions uh, they the answers don't have to be chess related they can be just whatever comes to mind okay so uh, question number one what is your favorite word my favorite words in French or in English yeah uh, either one and remember this is a family show so no uh, yeah, yeah. Nope. Uh, <laughs> I, I just you had a look in your eye, like maybe there might be something coming out. There. No, 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 no. <laughs> I'm not like that. So I mean, <laughs> I am like that, but not <laughs> not professional. Not professionally. Right. Um, 
I mean, to be totally honest, I've never even thought about it. So it's difficult for me to, to come up with an answer. That's why I ask these questions. Yeah, I know. Okay. Well, if so, all right. So no answer. So uh, how about a least favorite word? Least favorite words. Um, yeah, I'm struggling. Uh, it's more difficult than a chess game. <laughs> well, we can also, I mean, I know you do have to get ready for another event, so we can definitely just cut it here. As I, I can imagine it's also, as, as uh, excellent as your English is, I can also imagine this might be difficult in a second language. So, But even in the first language, like, um, I mean, I don't have like this feeling of, of, but actually for a favorite word, maybe mathematics in general, what they represent to me. And, and you, you have a degree in mathematics. Do you still, do you still read mathematics books? Do you sort of have it as a hobby? A little bit. I don't have enough time, of course, to have it as a real hobby, but uh, sometimes I do read uh, publications mm. uh, or whatever problems, some sort of uh, Olympiad problems, but I'm nowhere near good enough now to, to solve uh, any of that. But uh, it's fun, of course, to still uh, keep in touch. And I'll definitely, uh, you know, keep in touch uh, with the mathematics world uh, once uh, I'm, you know, I'm not a professional chess player anymore. Yeah, well, maybe that maybe that's actually even a better place to, to end it then. Because you, when you were talking to Ben Johnson, you said that you couldn't see yourself playing professionally after 40. Have, have, have you know... You're 31 now. Have have you? Do you feel different even even at 31 than you did when you were say 20 or 25? Um, things have definitely changed. Um, basically, the one big change is when you're 20, you don't have to do anything to have energy. You know, to bring energy to your games. Mm. Here, when you're 30, it already starts to become a struggle. You know, I need to prepare physically much. Uh, uh, much more intensively to to have energy, to have energy also throughout the tournament. I have to be more careful about what I eat, what I uh, what I do. Uh, so this is the one big difference. Of course, I know more. I have uh, better knowledge of the game, and uh, I'm playing much better uh, than I was uh, at twenty or even twenty five. But uh, to bring the energy and to also to keep playing uh, fearlessly also is a, is, is a difficulty. And one thing uh, that's also very important when you're 20 or 25, you want to crush it, you want to show the world that you're, you're going to go there, you're going to be there, and you're, not, you're here to, to beat them all. But after a while, you know, you see the same faces and uh, you see... You see some young stars coming up, you know, you know, basically uh, you with 10 years less, uh, like, I mean, so um, it can become a bit of a routine and uh, you have to actively fight it to become a routine because then, uh, then it's not so great for you just. Well, uh, hopefully in the next nine years before you uh, retire, you will achieve some of these goals you've laid out. Um, Maxime, it's been really uh, wonderful to get to speak to you. Uh, I appreciate you taking time out of your schedule. I know you're very busy. Uh, if people want to find you on social media, where is the best place to do that? Uh, I'm 
relatively active on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> but I generally, uh, I don't complain that much. Uh, it was this one occasion. <laughs> I mean, Frenchmen do like to complain uh, from time to time. I, I try to do it only for valid reasons. And uh, sometimes on Instagram. Uh, okay. That's uh, about it. And of course, on your website where they can keep up with of course. your events yeah, on, your, uh, on your website. Uh, what, what is the. And uh, yeah, and I update uh, my Twitter every time uh, there's a new article on the website. But uh, perfect. People are welcome to look through the history of my articles. All right. Because I've started writing there in 2017. So there's, you know, maybe at some point I should even look at the archives and, you know, how oh, I evolved uh, from there to to now. It's um, yeah, having uh, well, as as someone who has a lot of writing on the the internet, it it is definitely startling to go back and and see the things you wrote years ago and and wonder who that person was who said those things. Um, anyway, well, Maxime, uh, thank you again so much, and um, yeah, I, I hope everyone uh, who is listening has had time to read the December cover story with Chess Life. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I, I hope we can work with you uh, in the future. So yeah. thank you very much. Thank you, John. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening to this edition of Cover Stories with Chess Life. Our podcast will return next month on the first Tuesday, when we will again be making a deep dive into the pages of Chess Life magazine. U.S. Chess is a 501c3 nonprofit organization whose educational mission is to empower people, enrich lives, and enhance communities through chess. To become a member, go to uschess.org and click on the Join button, where you can find a membership option that is right for you. As a member, you enjoy rated play, print and digital copies of Chess Life or Chess Life Kids, and you help U.S. Chess grow the game. If you're already a member, consider clicking on the donate button at uschess.org. Our podcasts are produced and edited by Jason Andre at Seven Season Films Photography and Media. Please visit sevenseasonfilms.com to find out how to start your own podcast. Thank you and good chess. Chess.